Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. We are talking about a very familiar story, a very familiar story, the rich young ruler, one you've heard before, read before, and it just kind of drives home the point that our riches, our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. It has to be. Nothing else gives us lasting, real hope. So as we've been journeying through Mark, um, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem at this point. He's kind of made this big sweeping uh, journey across the east side of the Jordan. He's, a, he's on the east side of the Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea. He's across from what used to be Jericho, or they call Jericho now, but when God destroyed it in the Old Testament, it didn't really get rebuilt on the same site. Um, and his lessons and Jesus' actions right now at this point, they speak to the real calling, the real calling and commitment disciples will need to make to follow him. And so he's been teaching that as he goes. And, and then he taught a lesson, last time we were here, he taught a lesson on children and the grace that's poured out for the children. And the way they receive that grace is something we should imitate and put in our life. But after this lesson, Jesus now is confronted with a man who has his own version of salvation. He's got his own ideas. He has a man-made salvation. And it, this, this personifies that whole concept of you coming up with your own ideas about salvation. Let me read the, the story to you, and then we'll talk about it some more. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Let's pray. Father, what a sad story. What a, a story of desperation that can't find an answer. A story of hopelessness that realizes their hope is in something that won't last. We pray, God, that in our own hearts we'll look and see things in our own lives that we've been hoping in, trusting in, clinging to for our goodness, for our, for our hope. Help us to find this morning in this story the real source of salvation. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, there's many under, ways to misunderstand this passage, and I'm not going to cover all of them because there's books out there that talk about them. But there's many ways to misunderstand this story. But I'm going to talk about what it really means this morning. Today's passage, really, it points to, even today, it points to a group of people in churches all over the country. It points to people that spend every Sunday in church sometimes. They're listening to the gospel every week. They're singing the gospel every week like we just sang. Yet, 
Yet in their hearts, in their hearts, they're regarding, they, in, in their hearts regarding their allegiances, who they're committed to, the gospel makes no impact. It has no effect on them. They go away from church every week dismayed, sad, and lost. And they may not even know it. They may think they're saved because they came to church. Believers in Jesus Christ come to him as followers who have given up their versions of salvation, their versions of what Jesus has done for them. And, and, and we take what Jesus offers for us. So Mark records an encounter with a rich man who sought eternal life under his own auspices, his own specifications. And in this, sermon, in this passage, we want to see the, this familiar story. Jesus is outlining the ramifications of salvation, the ramifications of coming to Christ, what it really in our hearts will entail. It's nothing you probably haven't heard before, but hopefully this morning you'll hear it fresh and anew. What does Jesus expect of those who desire to follow him? What does Jesus expect of us? Well, he tells us loud and clear. The rich man, like some of us, approaches Jesus with his man-made ideas of how it, he gets eternal life. But Jesus corrects him with three things he needs to surrender. And that's our three points this morning. First, we need to redefine what good means. Give up your idea of good. Look at verses 17 and 18. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Okay, so this young man runs up to Jesus, which is very undignified in the Middle Eastern culture. Running to Jesus, running period, is very undignified. But he runs up to Jesus, and then he kneels, which is another undignified action. And, and he is a wealthy young man. We know this from several of the stories. This is in three, the three of the Gospels. He comes to Jesus with a great question. I mean, I love getting these kind of questions. How do I inherit eternal life? Well, that would be a great question. Of course, it looks like he's a good candidate for the ministry, for Jesus' ministry so far. But let's, let's examine his question and his words. First, good teacher. Good teacher. Good teacher. Jews never used the word good to describe anything except God. When they, when they taught, when they expressed things, they never said good. They just said they, they only use that word with God. And so he's kind of using it in a wrong way. He thinks he's using it the right way, but he's really not because he just sees Jesus as a teacher. He doesn't see Jesus as God. He doesn't see him as the Messiah. So Jesus corrects him right up front. And now Jesus isn't saying that he's not good, that Jesus isn't good. He's just saying only God is good. He is pointing the man to the only good that matters. Our definitions of good, our ideas of good don't matter if it doesn't align with God's definition of good. He is pointing the man to the only good that matters. God's standard is the only one that matters. When we combine good and eternal life, we use good a lot around here, you know, as good pie, Miss, Miss Ethel. You know, we use that word a lot, but, but when you put good and eternal life together, there's only one standard that you can do that by. There's only one standard. Only one standard. So let's look at the next word he uses. Inherit. It's an interesting word. I looked in the Greek, and that's exactly what he used. It doesn't have any kind of variations on its meaning. It means inherit, what we always instill. So 
this word implies a position of worth. He thinks he's already there, really. He thinks, I'm just going to inherit this. What do I do to inherit eternal life? He, he thinks he's got the pedigree for it. He thinks he's got something about him that's going to gain value from Jesus. This man really thinks he's already a child of God. He's already born again. And he thinks he's a progeny to the kingdom. And what he really wants to do is he wants to see the will. He doesn't care anything about his actions. He doesn't care anything about what really to do. He wants to inherit. So let me see the will, Jesus, that I, where I get eternal life. That's really what he's trying to, kind of asking. So good and inherit Kind of the wrong use of those words in this, this thing. I mean, he brings assumptions about his position to Jesus, and Jesus hasn't even answered his question yet. He comes with presuppositions, we call it. He presupposes things. And then he also has this idea that he can do good enough. He can do good enough to gain eternal life. He just, give me the list, Jesus. Just give me the list. Help me show you how good I am. Look what a catch you're going to get. Look, look what a disciple you're going to get. If, if you just give me what I need to do, I'll show you. The rich man just wants to show off his credentials, his, his prowess, his abilities. That's what he's coming for. But see, God's standard of good is beyond anything we can obtain. I mean, that's where salvation has to start. Our definition of, of good is all wrong. God's standard of good is beyond anything we can do, anything we can obtain on our own. Only God is good, and that good has to be met for anyone to receive eternal life. For e eternal life to even be possible, that good has to be met. <clears throat> you ever heard the phrase, your best isn't good enough? I remember a movie, I think it was a teacher movie, and this guy said, I'm doing the best I can. And he says, your best isn't good enough, do better. And the group I mentioned earlier that are here every week or, or in a church every week and hear the gospel every week, they're just going to go out and do better. They're going to go out and do better. They're not going to take in the gospel and think, you know, that I need to just rely on God. I'm going to do better. My best isn't good enough yet. I'm going to go do better. They keep doing stuff that pleases others. They keep doing stuff that makes them feel good and feel content in their position with God. The gains notice from other do-gooders. Everybody, oh, he's got a good reputation. Oh, he gives a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. God, God has a different idea of good. And it's not anything we can even remotely get close to. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the Old Test New Testament, <laughs> most of the New Testament, he pursued good. He pursued it as a, a Pharisee. But he realized after he became a Christian that you can't get there. Listen to what he says in, in Romans chapter 7 about his own personal walk with God. Listen to this. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. God's law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but, this, what, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me. Nothing. You, you can't fudge on that word. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Boy, 
That describes my life <laughs> every day. But as a believer in Christ, we know that there's no good in us. We have not the ability to achieve the good of God. We have to trust in Christ. So what is your idea of good in relation to eternal life? Oh, and, and instead of good, because good can kind of be confusing in our day and age, we use that a lot. Let's put the word perfect in there. Perfect. What is your idea of a perfect life in relation to eternal life? Are you perfect? Anybody want to raise their hand on that one? I can't raise my hand on that one. Are you perfect? No one is. The Bible is very clear on that. And, and, and just pick up your newspaper every morning. Nobody's perfect. There's never been a report of, hey, this guy was perfect yesterday. Nothing. Never, you're going to never see that headline. So how is eternal life offered to the imperfect? The imperfect. We are all imperfect. There's only one way. But there is a way. And that's the glorious truth we have. There's only one way. God, who is perfect, sent his son, who is also perfect, to provide, to provide the way, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to bring God's perfection to planet earth for us. Yet, we can't really understand or gain eternal life until we first lose our idea of good. If you keep hanging on to the fact that, well, I, I made a decision, or I did this, or I went to church, so I'm, I'm, I did that, and then Jesus added the rest. No, no, no. It starts with Jesus, and you've got to give up your idea of what is good. I can never be good enough for God. You can't. That's why he looks at you through Jesus, and he sees Jesus Christ and his perfectness. And that's what we have, because the Bible's clear, for all have sinned. You know that familiar verse. No one is righteous, no, not one, Paul writes in Romans 3. Let that grab your heart right now and sink in, that you are never, ever going to be good enough for God. Because his good is way up there. So we've got to give up our idea of good. That's the first thing he asked this man to give up. Give up your idea of good enough, and then now give up your idea of religious achievement. Give up religious recipes, I call them, because there's a lot of them out there. I mean, in his time, it was Judaism, but there's others now. Let me read verse 19 and 20 for you again. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to them, him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Most of us are going, right. Just let's just go ask your parents about that one. <laughs> you know, have you honored your parents your entire life? Yeah, no, we we know that from the from the get go. But it's also interesting to notice that Jesus only gives him six of the ten, and we'll talk about that. So Jesus gives him a short list. Really, it's six of the ten, like I said. And Jesus lets him draw his own conclusion that keeping those is what saves him. Keeping those is how he inherits inherits gets or gets on his own effort eternal life. He let, Jesus let him draw that conclusion. But the truth is, obeying means more than just an outward compliance. And that's all he's talking about. See, if anybody watched me my whole boyhood and my whole life, they would see that I did all those six things. Now, they have no idea what went on inside him. <laughs> and that's where the real sin is. Matter of fact, James talks about that. that's where sin starts is inside first. Jesus even talked about that. Everything comes from within. There is a heart issue too. Jesus taught this in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He taught it in Luke 6. In other places, he teaches that your heart is the seat, the throne in your life of all allegiance. So who's sitting on it? 
That's the question that he's challenging. It's not what he did outwardly. It's what goes on inside. But the rabbis at that time, they taught that if you obeyed all the commands, which was a lot, but if you obeyed them all, you would inherit eternal life. But their definition of obedience was if you looked like you're obeying them. If you look good, you're good. You're good with God. They taught that. Some of this they based on Deuteronomy 30, but really that passage only speaks to keeping the promised land. It doesn't speak to eternal life. But Jesus gives him only six of the big ten, and they're the horizontal relationships. They're the they're relationships with people, not with God. He hasn't even approached that yet. He talks to him about these horizontal relationships. But Jesus is kind of setting him up because he knows what his heart's thinking. But this man is really deceived that he is perfect in those six. He's really deceived. He is only judging by his outward appearance. And some of us really look good on paper. But in our hearts, whew, Let's, let's not go there, right? Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to meddle in that kind of stuff. He's only judging by outward appearances like the Pharisees who taught that same thing. He never really examines his heart. He most likely has hated someone in his heart, which is murder, according to Jesus. He's most likely defrauded somebody because rich people don't have to covet. They just go by or they get, they finagle. Well, I want that piece of property, so... I covet that piece of property, so I'm going to go get it. I'm going to defraud the guy out of it or, or whatever. So that's why Jesus uses the term defrauding there, I think, instead of coveting. He's heard the truths of scriptures, but he's not found the right application of those truths. Like I said, the rabbis and others, they've twisted the application of the Ten Commandments. And, of course, they put 600 other laws, traditions, to guard the Ten Commandments. And then they made those into sins, which some of them, most of them really are not. But they've twisted the application to neglect the inner obedience of man. Religion cannot save a soul. Religion can never save a soul. Ever. You can't live a perfect life. We, went, we talked about that a while ago, right? Perfect. God requires perfect. You know, you see today in advertising, just do this and you will fill in the blank. Be thinner, healthier, cooler. <laughs> you'll, you'll be richer, younger, safer, holier, even in religion, satisfied. I mean, just fill in the blank. That's Madison Avenue talking to us, giving us a recipe to accomplish our goals. And religion is really no different. Religion is telling you the same thing. Subjecting yourself or doing certain rituals will gain eternal life in their version of heaven, in their version of heaven, and Paul mentions these ideas in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about how man has gone astray from God. Listen to this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Paul's hitting the nail on the head there. Humanity decided we would come up with our own version of how to, who to worship and how to be saved and how to have eternal life. We're, we're going to enter nirvana on our own precepts you know what religion is man's attempt to reach god that's what religion really is it's man's attempt every one of them is man's attempt to reach a god of some sort 
Not the God, most likely, but a God. Or it's religion is man's attempt to be God, because that's what we really like to be. I mean, that started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve wanted to be their own God. That's what religion is. God, by Jesus Christ, reached down to humanity, and that is Christianity, the real Christianity, not what you sometimes see portrayed on TV. Eternal life is the distinction between religion and Christianity. Everything else has got you trying to reach and be good enough for God. Christianity says there's no way, but I'm going to send Jesus so you will be good enough for God by his blood and his sacrifice. Are you trusting in your church attendance? Are you trusting in your charitable giving? Are you trusting in your deeds done that look good to everybody around you? Even if it's aiding the sick or the needy or giving to someone, are you trusting those things to get you to heaven? They won't. Do you think that your religious deeds or your obedience to religious rituals is good enough to live forever with a perfect God? Even some of the stuff we do that's good stuff, and I use that word loosely, good stuff is never perfect enough for God, no matter how good it is. Do you think your religious deeds are good enough to live with a perfect God? Even giving up all you own, which we're going to get to in a minute with this guy, even giving up all you own will not earn heaven. There's a lot of people today that give up everything. They live in abject poverty as a submission to a God. But if they don't trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, they won't. The kingdom of God is why Jesus came. He came, and Mark's been telling us that through the whole book, he came for the kingdom of God. He came specifically to introduce to us the only way to enter the kingdom of God. The only way we can gain access to the kingdom is through Jesus Christ. And the centuries of man-made religions, and I could say millennia, but it's hard to say that word, the millennia of man-made religions and false piety faces off against the only perfect human. All of it comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And it fails. It fails miserably. Jesus is the only way to heaven, to eternal life, ever. I mean, we design our own God sometimes, and that's a fallacy. People design their own way. I talk to people all the time, well, you know what I believe? It doesn't really matter what you believe if it's not from this book and not about Jesus Christ. We design our own God, with a, and we usually design him with a very low standard, you know, um, and, and I think the standard gets lower the older we get. You know, some of us can step across it now, but we, as we get older, we're like, well, I'm just going to get over it like this. You know, we design a God with a very, 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 very low standard because we want to meet that standard. I mean, why wouldn't you, you know? I mean, I love it when kids come up with this game, their own games. They kind of design their own games, and, and it's simple because that way they can win every time. That's the way they've got it figured out. When we worship our God idea, we're really worshiping ourselves. We really are. So give up your religious recipes of deeds and traits to gain access to the kingdom. Jesus is the only way. There's a song like that. Jesus is the only way. Trust in him alone for forgiveness of sin. Rely on his actions to receive the gift of eternal life. That's all we need to be relying on. And if, if you've been duped by the religiosity of Christianity, I'm sorry. Because there's nothing out there that you can do inside a church building or anywhere that will save you. 
The only thing that can save you is Jesus Christ. The only person that can save you. So throw out your wrong definitions of good. That's the first thing Jesus got, got across to him or tried to. Stop chasing religiosity. He gave him a whole bunch of commands and the guy thinks he obeyed them, but he's, he's chasing after his own tail there. And then the last thing to surrender is everything else. By faith, surrender it all. Give up everything to Jesus. Listen to what he says in verses 21 through 22. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked at him. I mean, he didn't just glance at him. He looked at him. Looked at him. In his self-assured righteousness and confidence, he saw him completely rejecting everything God does for our souls. He saw that in that man, and he loved him. He loved him. Now, what kind of love? Well, I'm glad you asked. The love that wishes well, the love that wishes well, to someone, you know, I wish you well. Jesus loved him like that. That looks to the best welfare of the one receiving that love. It's unconditional. Yes, it uses the Greek word agape, and we're all familiar with that. But that's just a, a love that looks beyond anything else and just loves the person. But see, we've messed up the definition of love, and I'll get to that. Jesus loved him as a lost soul who was unable to have salvation his way. He was, used, he was coming with his own idea of how to be saved. Jesus loved him regardless of his arrogance, regardless of his man-made ideas, regardless of his version of good. Jesus loved him anyway. And this kind of love that we're talking about with Jesus, it never, ever, ever compromises the truth. Never. If it does, it's not love. Not really. This love never compromises the truth. If Jesus allowed him to leave thinking it was okay to just say you kept these six commands, that wouldn't be love. That'd be actually condemnation. It would actually sentence him to hell. It wouldn't be love. See, compassionately condoning sin of any kind, violations or omissions of God's truth, it's not love at all because hell is the result. Hell is the result. And this, this even applies after we're saved. Confronting people about their sin is good for their soul and good for their spiritual condition. And it's something we should do for one another, helping each other become better believers. But as a, as a non-believer, Jesus couldn't let him walk away. And Jesus tells them, he loved him. Oh, he loved him. And he said, you lack one thing. You're still lacking one thing. It's kind of just like telling the, the child the stove is hot. Don't touch it. It's going to burn you. Because that's what's going to happen to him. You will suffer if you miss this one thing I'm telling you about. So Jesus gives him a simple test, which I know we're all thinking, that's not very simple, Bill. Well, it's not. But it's a simple test of whether he has kept the first commandment, the greatest commandment that ever was. The other half, if you will, of the Big Ten the other four commandments that is in the Ten Commandments. This is the no idolatry test. Jesus doesn't, God doesn't want us to have idols. To have no other gods or idols in your life or heart. All allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's the test he's giving him. So he says, 
Sell it all. Sell it all. Because poor people don't need your fancy furniture. Sell it all. Give it all away. Give all the money away. And you will gain treasure in heaven. Now, that should have been a clue, right? Wait, if I gain treasure in heaven, that means I'm going to get to go there if I, if I do this. But, but there's something involved that I'm not sure what else is involved. And he never really gets it. But the next part should have clued him in on that too. Follow me. Follow me. Believe in me. Trust in me for eternal life where you can go and enjoy this treasure. This is the answer to his question. Not selling all of his possessions. The answer is follow me. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus asked him to surrender his heart's affections. His heart's affections. Trust in what Jesus can do for his eternity. You want to know how to inherit eternal life. You want to know how to gain access into the kingdom of God and live in heaven forever with a perfect God. Here's how. Follow me. Follow me. See, eternal life only comes by faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for your sins and your justification with a perfect God. And what Jesus is doing for this young rich man, this ruling young rich man, is showing him that he needs to exercise his faith in God alone. He needs to trust God. Trust God. He couldn't let go of that stuff and trust God. Does he trust God enough to let go of all of his idols? Okay, so he didn't see them as idols. So does he trust God enough to let go of all of his security? Hmm. All of his comfort. All of his convenience. All of his status. All of his position. All of his reputation. Does he love and trust God enough to let all of that go? Does he trust God enough to let go of his version of salvation, his man-made salvation? Only, only place, this is the only place in Scripture I ever find anybody walks away from Jesus sad. The only place. Everybody that comes and confronts and gets in a conversation with Jesus walks away happy. I remember, you remember the woman at the well? She sprinted back into town to tell everybody. She had met a man who loved her regardless of what she had done. This guy walks away dismayed and sad. He could not give up his God. And he's like Esau. He's like Judas and a host of others that are in Scripture. He could not repent of his idol worship and receive the grace of God. He couldn't. He could not trust God. With whatever comes after, he sold everything and gave all the money away. He couldn't. You know, if you were floating in the middle of an ocean on a piece of debris, a board or something, piece of fiberglass even, and you were floating there in the middle of the ocean and there's nothing else around, and all of a sudden a boat pulls up beside you and you didn't see it, you didn't hear it, all of a sudden a line comes over the top and there's a preserver and a lifeline, would you, would you keep your piece of debris or would you let it go? I don't think any of you would think, well, I'm going to keep this piece of debris. It's, it saved my life, you know. No, it, the victim doesn't refuse the lifeline. The victim grabs the lifeline and lets go of the piece of debris. Floating debris is like our false hope. Floating debris is like this man's stuff. Floating debris is like our own idea of what salvation should look like. And Jesus is the lifeline. He's the lifeline. You know, Paul had some really good stuff to cling to in his life, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. 
I mean, he, he didn't like to brag at all, but I mean, he goes through a list in Philippians about what he had, what he was, the status he gained. Paul had the good life before as a Pharisee. And now he has eternal life. And here's what he says about the stuff he had. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what Jesus is challenging this young man to do. So what are you clinging to this morning for your eternal life, for your eternal security? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ challenge you to surrender, give up all? Does it, does it put you in a position where you're willing to, want to, can? It should. See, Jesus didn't give this man an ultimatum, and that's the way a lot of people think about this. Well, it's either stuff or me. That's not really what Jesus did. He didn't give him an ultimatum or, or, or a command or a directive just to hurt his life. <laughs> he gave him an invitation. He invited him to abundant life. And abundant life costs nothing except Jesus Christ, his, his life. That's what he's inviting him to. He's, it's, a very, it's a very sincere invitation. Remember, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved him. And now he gives him this invitation. Do you hear the invitation that's being given to you right now? We're all given this invitation. If you've never been touched, really touched by the gospel, now you can be. Now you know. Where's your heart? What's sitting on the throne of your heart? Is it Jesus? You know, I spent 18 plus years inside a church building, growing up inside a church building, around a lot of people who loved me, taught me the Bible, cared for me. But I was untouched by the gospel. For 18 plus years, I was untouched by the gospel. And then one day, one day I realized my man-made religion, my man-made ideas about Jesus Christ or about getting to heaven were wrong. And I was hopeless. And fortunately, someone pointed me to Jesus, and he invited me. So how do you react to this invitation? Are you hoping Jesus will change the entry requirements to heaven? Are you, are you just waiting and saying, well, maybe it'll, we'll find out something, and it won't be so drastic that I have to trust only in Jesus? Listen, he will not change the access requirements to heaven. Why? He paid too high a price for them. With his own life and his own blood, he paid so high a price, he's not going to change them. So you must come to Jesus on bended knee, in humility, like a child. I think that's the reason these stories are back to, stories of the children and the young ruler are back to back here. We've got to remember it's humility like a child. And you know what? Grace affords you that opportunity to do that, to give up all your sin all your idolatry, all your immorality, all your unholy relationships and self-made gods and turn to Christ, the only one who can really save. This is not, 
as some people will preach this passage, this is not an invitation to poverty, okay? This is not saying we all have to be impoverished to be Christians. Some people have interpreted it that way. Some people live in monasteries because of that, to try to do that. And it's not a requirement to be saved. You don't have to sell everything you have and give the money away and, to be saved. It's a plea to make sure your heart is always ready to fully trust Jesus. Always ready to fully trust Jesus for your eternal life and everything else. Giving up the world's ideas of perfect and following Jesus is the only way. Giving up whatever idea you may have about Jesus. I spend a lot of time to, here and among us to teach you that this Bible is where we go for our answers, not something we create. Jesus is the only way. As I close, I want to tell you a little story. It's fiction, but it's a good illustration. A guy's walking along, and he, he's walking this narrow path next to a cliff, and he slips, and he falls off the cliff. But there was a branch there sticking out of the side of the cliff, and he grabs a holt, and he's hanging there. And he's wondering, what am I going to do? He says, God, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you forever kind of thing. You know, that kind of prayer. If you get me out of this, I'll serve you forever. So he's hanging there. The next thing you know, there's a person looking over the cliff. He looks up, and he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. He says, are you going to help me? He says, do you believe I can help you? He says, yeah, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> Do you believe I will help you? And he's looking at Jesus' face, and he sees the love that the rich young man should have seen. And he sees this, this expression that says, yeah, he's going to save me. And he says, yeah, I believe you will. Jesus says, then let go. Let go. Let go of whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're hanging on to, to save your soul. That's the kind of faith Jesus is asking us for. That's the kind of faith that we need. There's a hymn that says, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let's take time this morning as we enter our pastoral prayer of silence, time to, to pray for our hearts to surrender, to surrender to everything Jesus has called us to. Be willing to give it up. I mean, really willing. Sometimes we say that. Challenges will come to our faith. What's our faith going to believe and what's our faith going to hang on to? Let's pray for that, for our own hearts. Let's have a time of silent prayer. If you want to come to the front and pray while we do this, come ahead. We'll pray for a minute or so and then I'll close us out. Let's pray.